Ooh. The man needs an introduction. He just doesn't get one. <laughs> you know, this is ageism, isn't it? This is ageism. Where sad old people are neglected and... <laughs> anyway, you know... Okay, I wasn't ready for this. Usually we've got... I don't know, three or four more things to do in a Sunday morning before I get up to preach. So I was down there memorizing my lesson. And I looked up and Kobe said, well, you're, get up here, you're supposed to be up here. And I thought, you know, there's a real danger, you guys, in getting me up here early. You found it last week. Did you notice? The church sent out the, the uh, video from last Sunday's message and I looked at it, and it was 52 minutes long, and I thought, I talked for 52 minutes, and we still ended on time, which has to mean we're starting too early, and you've given me even more time now, like this is frightening, I could go for 55 minutes and, and still be legal, and you'd have to sit here for 55 minutes. This is a mistake. I'm used to operating with not enough time, so I have to rush. So I don't know how to fill this void. And I'll tell you stories of my youth. Jokes. Don't get me going. You know, I've got a problem with self-control, so... All right, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, what does freedom look like? Well, maybe you're getting tired of hearing this, but let me just give you the introduction to Romans all over again. Um, the Roman emperor kicked out all the Jewish believers from Rome. He kicked out all the Jews from Rome, so the Jew Jewish Christians ended up having to leave as well, which left a Gentile church in Rome essentially on its own. And it got used to being the church in Rome because it was the church in Rome. And a number of years later, the law was changed and the Jews were allowed to return to Rome. So when the Jewish Christians returned to Rome, they discovered this Gentile church which was thriving and powerful. So now we've got two factions of believers, followers of Jesus in Rome. We've got the Gentile followers and we've got the Jewish followers. And there was a rift between the two, a very serious rift between the two, because the Jewish Christians at that time pretty much saw Jesus as the fulfillment of Judaism. And so their view was that all of the laws and, and um, the rituals and everything else that was, that was religiously Judaism, culturally Judaism, that should survive into this latest expression of Judaism. So in other words, Christianity following Jesus would be essentially a sect of the Jewish religion. Well, the Gentile Christians in Rome had gotten used to life without the law and life without the traditions and everything else because they're not Jewish. And so they've, they've got an idea of what Christianity should be. And the Jewish Christians have an idea of what Christianity should be. And, and essentially, in many ways, it's oil and water. So Paul's coming to Rome to solve this rift. He's coming to speak into essentially division. 
And he gets the opportunity to define Christianity, not just for them in that place to solve their problem of disunity, but for all time. Romans is important because it is the definition of our faith theologically. He's a great theologian. He's an amazing mind. It's so so clever of God to find the perfect person, you see, to, to, to heal this rift and to define Christianity. I mean, he was raised as a Pharisee. He knew the law better than most of the other Pharisees. He understood the Old Testament perfectly. And yet here he has had this revelation of grace, this experience of God which radically changed him. And he's going to define for them and for us what Christianity actually is. As far as Paul is concerned, true Christianity is all about grace. And by the way, I was at a dinner party Years and years ago, when I was in just out of university, and I was at a dinner party of, of a bunch of lawyers, and we were talking about world religions. And one of the lawyers, there was a woman, a, a good friend of mine, just absolutely brilliant. And as the argument went on about what Christianity was or wasn't at this table, finally she said, You people don't understand Christianity. And she wasn't a Christian. She was actually a witch. She was a witch. And uh, she said, you people don't understand Christianity at all. And I thought, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> and, and everyone stopped and looked. And she said, Christianity is about grace. She said, it's the only religion in the world that has a God who died for your sins. All the other religions require on your works to achieve unity with God. From the mouth of a witch. She, she got it. Now, she didn't follow it because she didn't want grace. She didn't believe she needed grace. As far as Paul is concerned, our faith is grace. We're justified by God, made holy, not by our actions, but by Jesus' actions on the cross. He voluntarily took the punishment for our sins by his death for our sins. In fact, as I told you last week, he became our sin. He did not wear it like a coat and deal with it on the cross by dropping the coat. He became our sin for us. You see, if he has the ability to become our sin for us, then he has given us the ability to become his righteousness. If he so perfectly shared in our human nature that he took all of our human nature upon himself and all the sin that results from our sin nature, if he can take that all on himself and die with it and he can become our sin, then we can become his righteousness. So when he's resurrected from the grave, he is dragging us out of the grave with him because we went to die with him on the cross. See, his act of identification, 
His act of identifying with us as a human for us was so perfect that he became our sin. And his identification was so perfect that we are identified with him in his righteousness. We become his righteousness. And believe me, there is no other religion in world history that has that to offer. And it was a free gift. We could not earn such an extravagant and costly gift. It is not possible. Now listen, to try to earn it results in living under law. Oh, you foolish Galatians who started with the Spirit, are you hungry to rush back to life under the law? When we try to pay for it, we are under religion. When we accept it freely, we are under grace. Now that should cause you some anxiety because that means I can do whatever I want. That means I'm free. That means I don't have to measure up. That means I don't have anything to prove. That means I'm free. Maybe that doesn't creep you out, but it really creeps a lot of pastors out. You see, if the people are really free, I can't control them. And if I can't control them, who's controlling them? And Paul's going to deal with this issue in just a minute, by the way. I'm not making this up. This is the problem and the theological question that follows from the reality of grace. What do we do with our freedom? Now, the context for Romans 6, I did this to you last week. The context for Romans 5 was the last verses of Romans 4. Well, the context of Romans 6 is the last verses of Romans 5. If we don't look at that, we're not going to understand what he's saying in the beginning of 6. So let's just go back for a minute, and then let's just look at the last couple of verses of chapter 5. Consequently... Just as one trespass, one great sin, resulted in condemnation for all people. Now, what was that? What's he talking about? He's talking about Adam and Eve. He's talking about original sin. He's talking about the tarnishing and corruption of our relationship with God. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. Why? Because we inherited that tendency towards independence from God. It wasn't just Adam's problem. It's a human problem. If Adam hadn't have messed it up and Eve hadn't have messed it up, one of the kids would have. As one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. And who's that? That's Jesus. For just as through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the many were sinners, were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, 
the many will be made righteous. Made righteous. Accomplished fact. Are you holy? Are you holy? Yes. Why? Because you're good all the time? No. Because He has made you holy and set you apart for His purposes. You are holy. Now live like it. The law, now listen to this. Now this is where things get interesting. This is where problems begin theologically. The law was brought in so that trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that, just as sin reigned in life, excuse me, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's just look at that underlined part. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Have you heard a contemporary perversion of that underlined portion? Has anyone ever used those sentences to justify their life of sin to you? Have you ever heard that? I've actually heard that. I've actually had people in the last 10 years tell me that grace means they should sin more because if they sin more, grace has more to cover and grace is more glorious because it has more sins to cover. Can you believe it? Well, you know, shock of shocks, there's actually a movement in Christian circles today that's saying this. Actually a movement of people that really believe it will be to the glory of God to sin more so that he'll have more to forgive and he'll appear even more, even more uh, merciful. And it's been used to justify sin. And the argument suggests that Jewish law was given by God so sin would increase so that grace would be even more glorious because it would have more sin to cancel. Well, that's nonsense. When Paul is saying that the law was brought in so that trespass might increase, he's saying that the law accentuates the sinfulness of our actions and our hearts when we compare it to the perfect holiness of God expressed in the law. In other words, the role of the law is to convince us that we are sinners in need of grace. It is not to, <laughs> to heighten our propensity towards sin, but to reveal it more clearly to our hearts that we are people in need of salvation. We're people in need of mercy. Therefore, the, the, look, the more conscious we are, are of our sin, the more we value our forgiveness. We saw that with the woman that anointed Jesus' feet in the home of the Pharisees. And Jesus turned to the Pharisees and said, Who loves me more? The person without a lot of sin or the person... <laughs> the illustration right here in front of us. The one who's been forgiven much loves much, but that doesn't mean go out and screw up as much as you can. What he's saying is that the purpose of the law is to make sin more obvious. And it does. And the more obvious our sin is to us, the more we will value grace. 
Now, Paul begins chapter 6, clearly refuting this erroneous reasoning. And that was the context, and here he goes. Ready? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? No. We are those who've died to sin. We've died to sin because he identified with us so perfectly on the cross that we died with him on the cross. Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were baptized. We were immersed in his death. Buried with him through baptism into death in order that, for a reason, that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The purpose of grace is more than getting your sins forgiven. The purpose of grace is so you can lead a new life. I mean, it would be a wonderful thing, people. Don't get me wrong. It would be phenomenally wonderful if we just stopped at He's forgiven all our sins through grace. I mean, man, that's great. I'm going to make it to heaven someday because he's paid for my sins. I don't have to think of myself as a loser all the time. I don't have to engage in self-hate every time I make a little mistake. That's good. That's really good. But wait. If you order today, you also get... You also get a new flipping life. What does that mean to you? Well, what what does that life look like? Holiness. Jesus, you get to be like Jesus. Are you serious? Grace isn't just triumph over sin. Grace is the power to live above sin. It's a transforming power. It doesn't just deal with your sin, it deals with you. That's a good one. Put that on your fridge. So that we too may live a new life. If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we'll certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that our old self is crucified with Him, so that the body ruled by sin may be done away with. He's going to deal with our sin nature. He's not just going to deal with our sin, He's going to deal with our propensity to sin. And this, if you know yourself well at all, is a miracle. So that the body of sin rule, the, the, the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. I want you to really dig in on that phrase, slaves to sin. I want you to say in your mind, before Jesus, I was a slave to sin. Oh, I never did, I never, I never killed anybody. I never robbed a bank. How can you say I was a slave to sin? Well, that's, that's pretty harsh language, Mark. A slave to sin. The truth is simple. 
Before Jesus' death on the cross, we were slaves to our own sinful nature. Selfishness and sensual pleasure were our default positions. Now I know you're thinking, I I wasn't always like that. I, I wasn't always like bad. I did a lot of good things. In fact... I actually exercised a lot of self-control. I could have been way worse. There were thoughts going through my head I never did. So, you know, you're being really hard on me. Because when I look back, I actually did a lot of good things. In fact, I think I handled my sinful nature very well, all things considered. Look at some of the people in the room. And they're real losers. I know some of these people. They're screw-ups. They still haven't handled their sin very well. I'm doing pretty well. Yet Paul says, well, you were a slave to sin. Now that's strong language. But we don't get how strong that language is because, thank God, we don't do a lot of slavery anymore. Thank God that's over with. So the idea of being enslaved to something is not a a term that is really accessible to us. So when I say the wonder of grace will never be real to us until we understand that we were slaves to sin and we remain slaves until Jesus' death on the cross, it still doesn't mean very much to us. I mean, what's this slavery thing? Paul's using the strongest language he can use in his culture. Do you understand? Slavery. That's the strongest bondage image that Paul has access to in his culture. But it's not exactly relevant to us. Now, what would be relevant to us? How would we explain someone who is completely in bondage to something? Facebook. (laughs) Someone said addiction. 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 And boy, today we understand addiction. You see, today we might better understand the power of our sinful nature by referring to ourselves as addicts. Addicts. Junkies. You see, I say, oh, I'm pretty good. I, I got pretty good self-control. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't sin that much. You know, by a supreme act of your will, you can avoid some of your sin some of the time. But you can never avoid all of your sin all of the time. And it's time we just faced it. We have an addiction problem. If you've ever known a drug addict or an alcoholic, you've witnessed the power of someone being enslaved to something. Now, you're still thinking, well, you know, I'm not a junkie and not an alcoholic and uh, I don't think I'm enslaved to anything. Okay, how about this? How enslaved are you to getting your own way? Do you like to get your own way? Are we always looking at situations in terms of what I can get here? What I can get out of this? 
I, I, this, this, hey, guys, this is where I want to go to lunch. No, no, this is where I want to. This is the movie I want to see tonight. No, honey, honey, that's not the TV show I want to watch tonight. That's a chick flick. You know, it rots my teeth when I watch movies like that. <laughs> and my brain. People, how many Hallmark movies have I watched with my wife? We have the time to talk about this, so I'm, I'm just going to tell you how it works. Hallmark. That's right. She's not here. And I'm going to keep her. I'm going to keep her so busy this this week. She won't listen to this message. And I know you people. Some of you are going to commiserate with her and say, "I'm so sorry for what Mark did on Sunday." And then she'll figure it out and she'll listen to it. And then I'm in real, then she'll make me watch more Hallmark movies. Okay, this is a trick question. When you say, how many Hallmark movies have you watched? No, not one. You've watched them all. You watched one and you've seen them all. I mean, come on, people. Have you ever watched a Hallmark movie? All right, Hallmark movie. Norman Rockwell, small town. High school couple in love. We'll call him Brad and Shirley. Okay, Brad and Shirley, and they're going to get married, but Brad gets an opportunity to move to the big city, which is evil, and Shirley stays in the small town. Brad goes on to be a blood-sucking, wallet-extracting lawyer in New York, where he's working 86 hours a day. To make more money and to make partnership. Surely, because she's a genuinely sweet and perfect person, has become a veterinarian for rodents. She brings rats back to life. And if that ain't self-sacrifice, I don't know what is. Now, here's the really strange thing. Shirley is drop-dead gorgeous. She's a 10 out of 10. But... 15, 20 years have gone by and she hasn't married anyone. Go figure. Go figure. She hasn't married anybody. Some, I guess, I guess raising rodents from the dead is satisfaction enough not to need a husband. So anyway, there she is taking care of rodents and of course she drives a pickup truck and wears coveralls. Even though she's actually a supermodel, she always dresses like a farm worker, okay? Because it's wholesome, Norman Rockwell, right? Okay, so Brad gets a phone call. Brad? Yes? Grandpa's dying. Oh, you need to come say goodbye. I'm too busy. Now right there, right there, that's the evidence that the evil city has done its work on Brad. Brad is addicted to his job. But Brad has a moment of conscience. He comes back. He's in the town. He's waiting for Grandpa to die. And what happens? At the hardware store where Brad is buying rat traps. (laughs) And Shirley sees him buying rat traps. She is, as they say in modern language, conflicted. 
for in, in his eyes she sees a trace of goodness. Oh, just a tiny rumor, a mere innuendo of the man he once was, but enough to remember her feelings from high school. She finds herself strangely drawn to this man who's buying rat traps to kill her patients. Well, they ignore each other, or they try to, but there's something at work here far more powerful than they can imagine. It's Christmas. <laughs> well, for gosh sakes, people, if you've ever watched this show, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the small town, and it doesn't matter the month that they came back, but suddenly it's Christmas. <laughs> And the spirit of Christmas is fallen upon them. And they are filled with goodwill for one another, even though he kills her patience and enjoys it. What? Well, of course he chops wood for them. I'm telling the story, not you. We'll get to the wood chopping in a minute. I told you this would happen if you gave me too much time. I warned you that this would that this something like this would happen. Okay, so anyway, you know, you know, I mean, they're they're beginning to they're beginning to fall in love all over again. Now Brad is torn between the between the the white purity of small town living at Christmas time. Versus the evil of New York City. And he's about to make a change, but his fiancée, the fellow lawyer she-devil from New York City, is suspicious because he hasn't come back when he should have. See, Grandpa's already dead. It's been months. Brad has not come back to the big city. So the she-devil travels in in her, I don't know, Bentley Corniche convertible, pulls up and sees this nasty little pickup truck with Brad in the arms of a disheveled veterinarian who also happens to be a supermodel. The conflict takes place. Brad is torn. He gets in the car, the Corniche, with the, the you know Corinthian leather seats and puts it back like this and she, the she-devil's driving out of town with him and, and the veterinarian is completely heartbroken and then all of a sudden there's a blizzard. We don't know why. It was a beautiful Christmas scene but now there's horizontal snow blowing down the road. They actually had to put the top up on the car and the car's sliding around and she's, she's driving him back to New York City and then she, 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 gets, she, she gets frustrated or something and she turns the wheel and bam, they hit a tree. And who rescues them? Shirley. And Shirley saves the life of the she-devil. And Brad realizes here's a woman to sacrifice her own happiness to save the life of a she-devil. And that's it. Brad moves home, buys the local newspaper, and writes articles about safe, sound, and humane rodent control. If you've seen one Hallmark movie, you've seen them all. Ooh, why did I go there? 
addicted to getting your own way. Addicted to watching the movies you want to watch, not the movie she wants to watch, or vice versa, or restaurants, or food choices, or anything, vacation, destinations, whatever. We are addicted to getting our own way. The good news of grace is not simply that your sins are forgiven. It is that your very nature has been changed the moment you accepted Jesus' free gift of grace. The power over selfishness has entered you and you don't have to be controlled by it anymore. It means that if you choose to cooperate with the gift of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you can live free from the cravings of your own selfishness. Now this is really good news. And if it's not good news for you, it's good, for the, good news for the people you live with. Because they love to see this transformation in you. Okay, here's the bad news. The bad news is, this, this, is that this freedom from your sinful nature is not automatic. Just because He comes and lives inside of you and begins fighting against that selfishness, just because of that doesn't mean you're just going to all of a sudden become Sister Mary of Infinite Light. You know, you're not going to turn into this perfect person. You still get a choice. Grace does not force you to be good. It empowers your will to choose to be good. Grace does not force you to be good. It empowers your will to choose to do the right thing, to choose the unselfish choice, to choose to watch the Hallmark movie. You must still choose. And this is what Paul means when he says this. Now this is important. We're going to extract three principles from this text which are going to help you live under grace. And if you practice these three principles, you will find grace taking a greater and greater foothold in your life and empowering your choices more effectively, more consistently, more powerfully, and you will see yourself changing. So let's pay attention. And he says this, in the same way, Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires, but rather offer yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. Now, he offers three solutions here, and we're going to break them down one at a time. They involve our belief, our choices, and our focus. Three things. What we believe, what we choose, and what we focus upon. What we believe, what we choose, and what we focus upon. And first he tells us to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. This is what we believe. We believe that I am dead to sin, but I'm alive to God. This is something we should be reminding ourselves of every day. I am dead to sin, but I am alive to God. 
I do not have to go on sinning. No matter what cravings rise up inside of me, I do not have to do them. I am no longer a slave to sin. This is something we need to believe. If you don't believe this, you won't live it. If you don't have this foundational belief, you won't have the change. We have to believe it before it happens. This is something we should remind ourselves of daily. It's a fundamental belief necessary to living as a Christian. Any questions? You can't act on it until you think it. See, all action comes from an attitude. Attitudes determine actions, and actions determine results. So we, we always, the, the battle always begins in the mind. What we believe determines who we will be. So we have to first focus on what do I choose to believe? What am I believing? What do I understand a Christian to be? What's this whole grace thing? How does it work? That's why we're doing this teaching. So we begin by believing that I, whether I feel like it or not, even right now, even if there's no evidence of this in my life yet, okay? Even if I'm a Christian but I'm screwing up royally, I'm going to start with this belief. I count myself dead to sin but alive to God. I count myself dead to that sinful, that self-focused craving of always getting my own way and every bad thing that results from it. I'm counting myself dead to that. I'm choosing to believe it. Now, this is very important. When you choose to believe something, it doesn't mean you believe it when you choose. You make the choice to believe it, and believing it will follow your choice a short time later. But if you don't make the choice to believe it, you will never believe it. That's what they call faith. I'm going to exercise faith that this is true. I'm going to exercise faith in my behalf that I am dead to sin, that that nature, with that craving selfish nature within me is beatable. That there is now a power living with me that's stronger than my weakness. So we start with believing. I'm making a choice to believe this. Stick it on your fridge. Stick it on your mirror that you look at in the morning. Choose to believe it. Following that choice, he tells us, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Second, he's telling us that we have a choice to make. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Now, this choice is an actual choice. We can say no to sin. We now have the ability within us to say no to sin. We didn't before. It won most of the time. Not murdering people and stuff, just constant self-centeredness. Getting my own way. But now we don't have to do that anymore. I can choose not to. So start making choices that say no to getting your own way. In fact, practice it as a goal. Say to yourself, every day I'm going to make some choices where I prefer someone else's opinion or choice over my own, that I sacrifice my own agenda for somebody else's, that, that, that what, how I viewed I would spend my time today and what I've been looking forward to today is going to get sacrificed for the sake of somebody else who needs something from me. 
And you guys, you know, you just got married. You've not been married very long. You're living this, this now, right? How many times a day does marriage present you with the opportunity to say no to yourself? Many, 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 many times every day. Marriage is the self-improvement course we would never willingly sign up for. <laughs> Without pheromones and, and sex hormones, we would never sign up for marriage. <laughs> well, I'm trying to be honest with you. Or if you did sign up for it, you really didn't know what you were signing up for. It's the self-improvement course from hell. <laughs> or heaven. Yeah, that's it. It's from heaven. It will, it will confront you with choices every day to say no to that craving little self inside that's insisting on its own way. Hmm? Oh my gosh. Oh Lord. Kids. Kids. A bladder this long with a hole at each end. You put stuff in here and you take stuff away from here. It adds nothing to the family. It doesn't have a job. It brings nothing in. It consumes resources and it destroys your life. It destroys your life. When, we, when I was young, I imagine there was a day, we had friends and we were going through that period where they were all starting to have kids. And I said, what's it like to have kids? And one mother said, well, it changes your lifestyle. And I said, how? And she said, no style. <laughs> really, I've never forgotten. Terror filled my... I mean, you had kids. To, you think marriage is hard? See, marriage is great. Two people facing each other in love. You get all of my love. I get all of your love. You know, that's, that's a good deal. You put the kid in there. Screws up everything. Now you're both giving to this little bladder of self-centeredness. And then there's a second one. Oh, Lord. That, then life is over. Just kill yourself. Just be done. Zero, but I've watched you guys. I've seen you suffer. My heart goes, my, my heart goes, and guess. I'm sure there's some people here who have never been here before. It's not always like this. It's just not. In fact, I'll be done at the end of this message, and they're shipping me off somewhere else for a while to, do, to abuse other churches. Can you imagine? They ask for this? I don't know. Yeah, we're done. I'm, I, you guys have hurt my feelings. I'm done. I'm out of here. So, number one, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God daily. Second, we have a choice to make. Do not let sin reign in your bo mortal body. Start with the easy things, people. Start with the easy things. 
I told you this story when I was first a Christian and God started to reveal how selfish I was and I said to him, my, I mean, I saw my selfishness. It was overwhelming. It just pretty much made me sick. He shined a light in my heart and I saw what was there for the first time. And I said, what are you going to do? I mean, what, this, this is terrible. This is, this, what, how do I start? How do I start with this? Now that I've seen this, and I'm thinking he's, he's going to give me the worst thing in the world, something undoable. And he says, well, you know how you always take the last piece of pizza? I said, yeah. He said, stop doing that. That's how it started. That's how it started. Holiness in me, not that it's advanced very far, but it began with, stop taking the last piece of pizza. And I thought, I can do that. The next sacrifice was monumental. Give up Monday night football for the sake of your marriage. I thought my right arm was just cut off and thrown to the dogs. But I did it. Oh, I could only do it because God told me to. I mean, where, where is the, where's, that, where's the power to do that going to come from if not from a direct revelation from God? But I grew because I did it. So start making these choices, these little choices in your life. Every day presents you with a bunch of these choices. Take some. Take a couple. We can choose to say no. Third, he says, offer yourselves to God. Now listen, by seeking God's will for my life, I begin to focus my attention on Him and not on my struggles with my own nature. And the more caught up I get with offering myself to God, pursuing that intimacy with Him, the less my focus is on getting what I want and the more my focus is on how wonderful He is. And that gazing at Him, that intimacy with Him, it's not neutral. It's doing something deep inside. It's changing me because I'm becoming what I behold. Whenever we focus on giving ourselves to God, we see Him more clearly, but He guides us into actions which are righteous, beneficial for ourselves and beneficial for others. So look, Paul said this, it's for freedom that you were set free. But freedom is from our old nature to our new nature. It's not to just go do whatever we feel like. It's freedom from ourselves. So go and live free. Believe, choose, and focus. Believe, choose, and focus. Okay? Still ended 10 minutes early, you guys. That's awesome. Any, um, any questions or comments about this message? Can you bring it back around with the kids thing? Can you bring us up? About your kids? Yes. They're a gift. <laughs> they are a gift. Come on, you guys. I see, I see how much you love your children. Your kids are making you a better person. You're understanding the love of the God for you. You're understanding God's father heart because you get to be a father or a mother. When you see how much you love your children and you multiply it by a hundred thousand billion and you can say to yourself, wow, how God loves me. 
Man, what, a, what an illustration. When you discover how much you love your kid and it just about breaks you in half, the emotion's so strong of how much you love your child, and then you do the math, and you say, what I'm feeling for my child right now is a drop in the Pacific Ocean of how God feels about me. I... I have been denied that because I don't have children. But I had a nephew that I was desperately in love with for many years. And I realized if I, being an evil uncle, know how to love my nephew, how much more does the Father God love me? That's what your children do for you. Anybody need any help with any of this? You want to, if, if you need any help with this, uh, believing that you're free from sin, understanding that His grace gives you the ability to choose to do something unselfish, or the giving yourself to God, offering yourself to Him wholeheartedly. If any of those three are issues, why don't you come forward now and the prayer team's going to come. Yeah, come on up. And we're going to have a ministry time. I'd like to apply this in some way so that if we need help with any aspect of this, we can get help for it. Gary's got a word. So, uh... I just wanted to share a real quick example uh, that illustrates in a, a really strong way what Mark's talking about. And that's on this whole thing of addiction. We have seen numerous times addicts come to be delivered. And we have seen the power of God. I mean... Sometimes it's not an instantaneous thing and they have to work through it. But we've actually seen sometimes where it was an instantaneous deliverance where they were totally set free. So they were addicted and then they wanted, they chose to be, to get away from that. And through the power of God, they were set free. And that's the same thing that we can do in our daily life right. by choosing it. We may fail, so we choose it again. That's right. We may fail, but we can choose it again, and we can walk into that freedom because it was already bought. Right on. Right on. Yep. Good illustration. Okay, guys. Anyone that wants some prayer for any of these, or for anything, physical healing, emotional healing, relational healing, spiritual healing, you come, would the prayer teams come and take your place? And uh, if you've got any need whatsoever, please don't leave here without receiving prayer. And go and live free.